This is a Federal News Network podcast. Financial criminals need mules to move the cash. The Justice Department builds fences to keep the mules from getting very far. In fact, the Money Mule Initiative has been running for four years, and it's gaining ground. For what it is and how it works, we turn to the Consumer Branch Protection, Deputy Assistant Attorney General Arun Rao. Mr. Rao, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad to be here. And this Mule Initiative, we love the name of that program, and it has been going now, as according to what the Justice Department is saying, for a few years now. What is it? Sounds like an attempt to stop money laundering by stopping the people that carry cash around? Yes, that's right. It's an annual law enforcement effort, and it focuses on disrupting what we call money mule networks. These are networks that enable foreign fraud schemes. And as you pointed out, it's been happening for a number of years now. This is the uh, fourth year that uh, U.S. law enforcement agencies have engaged in this effort. It also runs concurrently with a campaign handled by Europol, the European Money Mule Action. And it's designed to target the facilitation of the movement of billions of dollars of money which in essence represents losses in a wide variety of fraud schemes. And what is the general origination source of the cash that people carry around? I assume it's currency that they carry around. It's frequently currency. We had a recent example of a case in, I believe it was in California, in which the defendants actually went door to door and obtained cash from the victims. This was in a so-called grandparent scam. So the Fraudsters would call the victims. They would claim that a loved one was in trouble and needed immediate assistance for bail and then would show up in the door and relieve these individuals frequently of cash, go with them sometimes to the bank and take cash out. Other times it's money transfers uh, and so the use of bank accounts. Got it. Does it also, though, cover money laundering for other types of organized crime? Yes. Frequently the charges, when they're ultimately brought, they can include money laundering, they can include wire fraud. They can include other kinds of fraud charges. And because other agencies are involved, well, let me ask you this, because crimes happen in various domains, say maybe involving postal fraud, does justice work with other agencies? Is this a multi-agency effort, the Mule campaign? It is. So it's coordinated by the Department of Justice's Consumer Protection Branch. We work closely with the FBI and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, but we also work with a number of different agencies including the Department of Labor's Office of Inspector General, Homeland Security Investigations, the Small Business Administration's Office of Inspector General, and the Secret Service. And in particular, we here at the Consumer Protection Branch work with the United States Attorney's offices around the country. And what is the extent of money muling that happens? Do we have any idea of how extensive the whole thing is? That's an excellent question. Those answers are difficult because fraud typically is underreported. In particular, with some of these schemes, victims sometimes feel shame. They're afraid to tell their loved ones or law enforcement that they've been victimized. And so getting exact numbers is a little bit difficult, Tom. But what we can tell you is that it's a serious problem. It's a common tactic, again, across a wide range of fraud schemes. Regardless of the particular form they take, ultimately, they require the movement of money. That's why the fraudsters are doing what they do. And so while we don't know exactly how much money has moved through money mules, a conservative estimate places that in the billions. And again, this is a nationwide problem. During the course of the 10 weeks of the Money Mule Initiative this year, we took actions in every state in the United States. Really? And by the way, what is the form of a money mule? Is it someone carrying a briefcase full of $20 bills or what does it look like? That's a great question. It can be someone who's simply carrying cash 
It can also be someone who's instructed to open bank accounts. And so one of the things we encourage folks listening to this program and people who have been become aware of the Money Mule Initiative to take away from this is that people can protect themselves by learning how they might be recruited by these types of fraudsters. People shouldn't agree to accept money or packages from people they don't know. They shouldn't agree to open bank accounts at someone else's direction. That's frequently a method that's used here. And also use care when responding to online job postings that may promise easy money uh, in exchange for very little work, particularly when that work involves sending or receiving packages. We're speaking with Arun Rao. He is the Consumer Protection Branch Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the Justice Department. And how does a case get initiated? How do you know, say, to say, let's go look for these people or this guy or this woman because we think they might be a money mule that will lead us to other criminals? How do you get started? Uh, Another great question, Tom. I can't get into a lot of specifics on this question, but I can tell you, generally speaking, we obtain information from a wide range of sources. That can include information from reports victims filed with law enforcement. And so, again, I want to encourage those who think they may have been a victim of such a scheme to make the reports to their local law enforcement or to the FBI. Another example is information that comes to us from financial institutions when they encounter suspicious activity. So a great deal of traffic out of a bank account, multiple bank accounts opening and closing, odd numbers of transfers to overseas accounts. Those are the kinds of things that can bring these cases to the attention of law enforcement. Yes. And when you find someone that is a mule, do you find that the mule is also the original perpetrator of the fraud or do the perpetrators sometimes unload the physical motion of the cash to other people for a commission, I guess? The answer is it depends, Tom. Sometimes the people involved in the transfer of funds are the fraudsters themselves, but other times they're what we call potentially unwitting. And in those cases, we adopt a very different approach than simply pursuing a criminal prosecution. Criminal charges and civil lawsuits are warranted for witting and complicit money mules. But what we hope to do in a lot of cases where we're dealing with an unwitting individual is to warn them, make them aware of the impact of their actions, and then hopefully prevent and disrupt the activity that way. So what we found, Tom, is that these letters can be incredibly effective. Most individuals who we contact via these warning letters that we send out appear to stop moving money fraud. And fraudsters put a tremendous amount of time and effort into cultivating each of these money mule contacts. And so with a relatively limited expenditure of law enforcement resources, a telephone, a phone call, a meeting in person, we can significantly impede foreign fraud operations by raising the costs of these activities. Okay. And let me ask you this. This is a 10-week effort every year. How come it's not year-round? It is a year-round activity. It is a 10-week initiative that focuses on both action components and outreach components. So this is an effort to publicize activities that are going on 365 days a year. But during the 10-week campaign, we also conduct a significant amount of outreach activity, as I just described to you sort of a moment ago. We have elder justice coordinators across the country who focus on educational activities to tell folks in the community about money mule activity. The U.S. Postal Inspection Service created flyers that were displayed in post offices across the country. And then the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center released a money mule public service announcement during that time as well. And so that's what makes the campaign different. The law enforcement activity, you're right to note, goes uh, 365 days a year. But 
during this 10 week, uh, we try to highlight some of the activities that have been occurring across the year and also, again, focus on significant outreach to the community. And if you nab a mule and there is money on that person, is it seized or what happens? Yes, it can be seized and then ultimately it can be forfeited to the government. But most importantly, what we're trying to do is return these funds to the victims. Once these funds leave the country, it becomes very difficult for us to bring them back and to make the victims whole. And so we are, again, focused on making victims whole because in a lot of these fraud scams, Tom, people end up losing their life savings and it can have a significant financial impact. And so what we want to do here is to try to obviously first prevent the crimes from even occurring in the first place, but then also when they've occurred, seize those funds where we can and return it to the individuals from whom they've taken. Sounds like you might nab a lot of people at the airports. It sounds like there's an international flavor to the whole uh, system here. That's absolutely right. And again, this effort runs concurrently with a campaign in Europe called the European Money Mule Action. And so it requires a great deal of coordination, particularly once the funds have gone across the United States border. Arun Rao is Consumer Protection Branch Deputy Assistant Attorney General. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. 
but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that, I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers as others call them every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship, step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. 
she turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.